and welcome to BiblioChat, brought to you by Bibliosoup.com. On this episode, we will be discussing how modern capitalism and the structure of businesses relates to the colonial era. And in order to help me dissect this problem, I have a very special guest, a recurring guest, Taylor Weeks. How are you? I'm doing well, Forrest. How are you? So, Taylor, you are an executive at a growing company. And in, in a field that's very competitive, the advertising and brand image, brand identity field. Yep. And so I think you're really going to help me understand this question um, of, like, of the main concerns of businesses. And eventually we'll, dis- we'll talk about how these, uh, how the concerns of businesses today relate to colonial companies of the past. So in your opinion, what are the, what are the main concerns of companies today? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are three main pillars that shape how I think about modern business. It's having access to capital, it's being able to innovate, innovation, and investment, being able to deploy those dollars. So really quickly, I can just give a little bit of a primer on each of those three components. Access to capital is basically the ability to raise money through a variety of different channels. It can be venture capital, it can be publicly traded via an IPO, or it can be friends and family if you're starting out a lemonade stand. Investing, how you choose to allocate those dollars that you've raised and fuel future growth and that goes really in tandem with the ability to innovate. So the ability to use science or technological advancement to innovate, make your good or service better through the use of technology and science. Okay, got it. So is there, is there a specific company yeah, that, absolutely. that exemplifies these? Yeah, so in all of our conversations, it's led up to this point because I really think the perfect example of this is SpaceX and Elon Musk. Think what you will about Elon Musk, but he's been a master at all three of these various pillars. Right. His ability to raise money over the last 20 years since SpaceX started is unparalleled. He's raised $5.9 billion. I'm sure the next thing will push him over six. He's been able to innovate and build reusable rockets, which dramatically lower the cost of going to space. And he's been able to invest with the capital that people have chosen to entrust with him in the development and building of these rockets, various launch sites, automated drones in the middle of the ocean, He's been able to master all three. Okay, gotcha. So, so what's interesting to me here is if, if someone's investing in SpaceX, like what's, what's the guarantee that your investment's gonna pay off? There is absolutely no guarantee, especially when you're dealing with something as volatile as rockets. Somebody entrusts vast sum, a collection of people entrust a large amount of money to Elon Musk because they think that he'll be able to crack that egg. It's really risky. In the early days, if one of his rockets had failed, that he spent all of the money that he had raised building, it would have been disastrous. Luckily for him, it hadn't happened. But investors are taking a risk in allocating their dollars to him. And he's choosing to invest those dollars in innovation and a variety of different manufacturing capabilities that make it better, more efficient, and cheaper to go to space. Okay, So so it's kind of a combination of... A founder who's very ambitious. Yes. Probably like the most ambitious people in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And investors who are willing to back him. Exactly. I wouldn't, if I were a rational human being, I would not entrust my life savings with SpaceX. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. risky proposition. Right. 
I wouldn't trust the amount of money that I know that I could afford to lose. And there are people with deep pockets in this world that he has access to, access to capital, that he's able to raise money from, and that's the role that SpaceX fits in a normal portfolio. Okay. Okay, so this is really interesting because what you're describing is very similar to the beginnings of the colonial industry. Very similar elements. Absolutely. So specifically, I would say in the, in the early 1600s, late 1500s, you see the exploration of the world starts to take place. Yep. And it, it's like this, it's similar ideas with Elon Musk and investors. The combination of, of um, how would you describe them? Uh, travelers, you have, you have sailors and explorers who are very curious and ambitious yep. and want to see the world, and they start traveling the globe. So you have a combination of very ambitious explorers backed with investors who are willing to pay the fixed cost of equipping a ship and paying all the sailors. Yeah, and that's a fascinating point. Elon Musk is the 21st century explorer going to space. And you see a lot of his rivals like Jeff Bezos and Richard, Sir Richard Branson going and doing the same thing. But the parallels are striking in that people are looking for the next frontier in today's day and age. People were looking for right. the next frontier, the new place that they could sell their goods, the new place that they could get raw materials from, access to new markets. Right. I think that's one of the main driving points behind colonialism in what they chose to do. Right, right. And, another, and so... The very first step you mentioned, access to capital, like this is what you need to start any company is like the, the funds to, to make it even possible. Absolutely. So in this idea of access to capital, there's two, two examples I would point to that reflect this in the colonial era, where firstly, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange formed in the 1600s, right when the colonial era was expanding. And later in the 1800s, the London Stock Exchange uh, formed as well. But, but even though but public shares were already being traded even before. Um, yeah, and that's, and that's fascinating because selling shares to fund your growth and ambitions. Right. Really, like it's funny that you say that because it is, it happens again and again. It comes at different life cycles of a company. An IPO could be after the company has already been around. But generally speaking, unless you're selling shirts or unless you're selling like manufacturing products, there is nothing to sell or spin up unless you've already raised the money. Like in this case, they needed to raise the money to build the ships right. and go and fund the crew and all right. those Right, things. and specifically in a public space. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that's what stocks are today. Is like it's the public can buy and sell shares. Absolutely. And it's really interesting to me that in the colonial era, this, this idea of public funding mm -hmm. kind of starts. Yeah. Where, you know, these boats need a lot of cash and the, the monarchy and like the rich, you know, already established aristocrats don't really even have enough. Or like these explorers... Either they can't convince the rich people already. Because it goes back to the inherent risk associated with this new venture. Like, I remember hearing stories and reading different anecdotes about how uh, countries would send four different ships uh, with 
equal parts of the same shipment. Like it can be gold, it can be grain or whatever, because they knew only two of the ships were going to get there. Right. And they needed to access. So like all four ships were probably not going to get there. So right. it was an inherently risky endeavor in those days. Right. Yeah. So there's no, and no guarantee oh. of, of a return profit. Right. And so, so in like SpaceX still reflects this where um, the only way these colonial companies who, which really profited from, inter, from the trade of international resources, you know, anything you can really think of, um, uh, like trees, coal, mm-hmm. uh, even gold, these were the resources these colonial companies were striving to, to collect and bring back to Western Europe for yep. huge profits. But it took it was huge amount of risk. Yeah. Because you think of all of the factors that could that came into play. Um, you know, obviously losing a wooden ship, it's really it's really hard for these wooden ships to withstand the waves and yeah. of the Atlantic uh, and the Pacific. And also another interesting variable to me is, you know, these companies have to have to take into account warfare mm-hmm. and like the attack and other colonial companies. Okay. attacking them and this is really explains an interesting lens to understand the anglo-dutch wars of the 1600s which took place throughout most of the century where the british east india company and the dutch east india company were constantly battling each other for territories yeah that's interesting because it's striking i'm sure elon musk would fight jeff bezos yeah. in the street if it was allowed and if it was permissible so it's interesting how the relative lack of rule in law and order back then fueled those actual bloody conflicts that right right were many wars right and i think and that's a core difference in understanding this between the colonial era and um modern companies today where modern companies like SpaceX, or not like even, even like car companies, yeah. they, they they have to develop a product, a specific product that they appeals do. to customers. Whereas the colonial era, um, and like you, see so if I kind of retrace there, companies today they develop products with the principles you mentioned, access to capital, and very importantly, innovation and investment in order to make a product that appeals to customers. Absolutely. And I would say a key difference in the colonial era and these colonial companies like the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, they innovated as well. And they invested, they had to invest their funds well also, but there was no product. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost seemed they knew what it is they were going to get. They didn't know what trade routes they'd establish to get them. And they didn't know who they would encounter on the way to get those goods. They knew right. they were after silks, spices, gold, trees, but they didn't know what routes they'd take to get them or who they'd encounter on the way that may want right. to steal their ship or shoot right. it down. Right, right, exactly. And so like, what's interesting to me um, in thinking about innovation uh, and investment, because these are definitely, definitely factors these companies were considering, um, so by 1800, the British East India Company really takes over the world. Yeah. They had the most, they had mm-hmm. the biggest territories and there were no, there weren't any other nations yeah. that could compete with them. They had, the, by far, England had the biggest navy. And so I'm wondering, like, do you, do you think that these, this, the British East India Company innovated better than their competitors or? I think they probably did. I think there was a 
there was probably a strong element of luck, but there was also a strong element of just being better. I think they were lucky to find and control early key trade routes to the likes of Russia or what we know as China In, yeah. or South Africa. In, that, in, in, India, Indonesia. India, Indonesia. Yeah, li that's literally the namesake of the company. I think that they may have been lucky to find those routes ahead of others, but I think they innovated through strat strategic or technological advancements the ability to maintain hold on those key routes. I think they were able to establish strong outposts that incumbents couldn't challenge. What are you right. going to go and do? Take over an outpost in India? Right. Because yeah, once, you, once you take a territory, you have to be able to control it. Through, and, through whatever means necessary right, in those days. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's really some interesting examples where, the, where there was a British outpost in Indonesia and there's this great battle. I can't remember what it was called, mm -hmm. but it was this, this group of, of sailors who were there, I guess soldiers you would call them, and they had to fight off a whole fleet of, of That's Dutch. That's crazy. Of Dutch How uh, did it work out navies. for them? Uh, I think they lost. I think they got crushed. <laughs> but, uh, Imagine my surprise, yeah. Right. It was just like an interesting example where... And so it just shows, it just shows like the... The ability to you have to like sustain what you're what you what you take, and yeah. Not give it up. Yeah, it's it's almost like playing a real life game of risk where you have to have the appropriate number of reinforcements, the appropriate embattlements. You have to have all of the cannons. You have to have all the riflemen. You have to be able to defend the territories that you take. Right. Or somebody else is going to come and steal it from you. And right. at that point in time, the Dutch may have wanted that more than any other outpost of the English government. Right. And maybe England was even comfortable giving it up, but still, that was a constant ebb and flow centered in violent conflict that led to people needing to defend their outposts a lot more than right. they had it up to that point. Right, so, so it's so, uh, especially as a company, these are issues these companies are dealing with. Absolutely. Um, is there anything like, so this, this uh, concern these companies had of, you know, how to, once you take a territory, you have to sustain it. Yeah. Um, is there anything in like the business world you've experienced that's anything, yeah. anything like I, that? I think, I think probably I'm going to go the route of explaining a company that has done the best job of defending its territory when faced with challengers or uh, upstarts, and I think that's Amazon. So Amazon has actually taken probably one of the dirtiest tactics of modern day business yeah. in understanding what gets sold in its online marketplaces, figuring out where they're made and the exact specs that uh, they're made to, and going in with its Amazon Basics line and copying them. So they, you can get Amazon Basics Ziploc bags, you can get Amazon Basics razors, electronic equipment, you name it. Amazon has entrenched its position as the number one marketplace of choice for the United States by copying, by using their flow of information right. where they sit on top of and customers' purchasing behavior and just copying what customers want to buy. And they've done yeah. a masterful job of defending oh, their territory. Wait, so they, they copy the oh, yes. technology of other companies making a product they copy the product they copy the marketing they copy everything and so right now it's really hard to be an upstart 
battling a, a major incumbent like Amazon. They, have, they control who you can sell to, they can oftentimes manufacture for a lot cheaper, and they may not be concerned with making money, whereas you need the cash flow to maintain your business. They have access to unlimited capital. Yeah, they can right. fund to stifle, oh, like, yeah, that's to, dirty. to snuff out yeah. all competition. It's very okay. Dirty. So that's so that's that's how they just cut out. It's kind that's of how the they suffocate companies. Like they that. absolutely suffocate companies, and it's the unwritten. It's it's the unspoken understanding of the business world and why they're so dominant. Interesting. Okay, so like, because I was actually going to mention how. Um, I was thinking the colonial, the, the drives of the colonial companies were uh, maybe a little bit at worse intentions than uh, these modern companies, but maybe not. I think it's just the same day, different stuff. Or yeah. different, different day, same stuff, right? Like that's that <laughs> yeah. saying, you know? Whereas right. the, the tactics used to execute the strategies of eliminate the competition reduce the competition or just kind of become dominant. Right. Back then it was military in nature, militaristic in nature and there were conflicts with loss of life. Now right. it's through an army of accountants and lawyers and marketing and right. the right. courts. The, the underlying principles are still the same. The tactics used to execute them are different. So, so what you're saying is really interesting to me because when I was thinking about this idea originally, comparing colonial industry to companies, I was kind of thinking to myself, well, you know, these colonial companies were horrible in how they, in how they did their business. You know, they invaded uh, India and Africa. Mm -hmm. they, they invaded and subdued these populations in order to uh, take their resources, harvest their resources. Um, and I was like, oh, at least today, uh, modern companies uh, have a higher moral standard. But what you're saying to me now is really revealing in kind of the, the behavior of really successful companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the perceived morality of these large companies is entirely by design. They want to appeal to environmentally conscious individuals by saying that they will be carbon neutral by 2025 because they are customers of whatever goods or services they sell. They want to try and craft diversity uh, metrics within their company and do different hiring practices. One, because I think there is legitimacy to having a diverse workforce and having di diversity of ideas and furthering right. the mission. But really, it's all about outwardly facing optics and essentially putting lipstick on a pig. When yeah. I think of that example, <laughs> I think of Facebook, where they're doing all of these diversity initiatives. They are extremely LGBTQ friendly. They are, you know, carbon neutral. They are doing all of these things. But behind closed doors, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is a ruthless capitalist who is singularly focused on advancing Facebook's top line, bottom line, and role within the modern society. So right. he is selling our data. He is mining our data to come up with better recommendations for us. He is like not a very moral person by most accounts. And to be honest with you, that's something that's starting to come to light where 
a lot of these corporate titans and big companies have a lot of skeletons in their closet. And the perceived morality or moral actions of these companies are now thought to be smokescreens put up to make customers happy and make you feel okay with continuing to support or use their app or product. Right, right. Okay, so that's really interesting. So so when it comes to... So you, so in your opinion, you think these really, really ultra successful CEOs, it comes down to like how much revenue is the company producing and are we accomplishing our goals? It's really, it's really the true drive and, and, and appeal to these, to I, these CEOs. I, so I think that is by far the first objective of these leaders. I think if they can accomplish those objectives while doing some form of good, they will do it. But if it's gets too uncomfortable to be good and moral and just, those plans fall by the wayside in pursuit of profits. Right, okay. And that makes me think about something that we haven't really talked about yet, but when I think of what I learned about imperialism in school, they didn't seem to be very good people. So in your estimation, and your opinion, were these imperialists, these colonialists, good people, moral and just? What do you think? Well, yeah, no, definitely not. And well, and it's also <laughs> okay. if you think about like like the time period. I mean, they were so brutal in the way they they would invade these countries um, and really like suck the life out of them. Um, and I, it makes me think about you know, are, are these were the leaders of these companies like men of their time? And like, how do you understand? That's a very, very good point. How 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 am I supposed to? How are you really supposed to judge uh, the morality of? the British East India Company and the Dutch East India Company. Um, and I don't know if I can, I'm not sure if I have a great answer to that, but something that I think is important and interesting to think about in this discussion is like, I just try to understand the perspective of the natives is something I'm more interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, there's been a few movies and a few plays that have been written okay. that really describe the experience that natives had when colonial invaders entered their country. And two movies that are pretty famous, maybe maybe you've seen, The War of the Worlds is one. Yep. And uh, Independence Day is the other. Oh, great movies. Yeah, yeah. I love those two. Um, and I think for War of the Worlds, I think it's my favorite depiction, my favorite um, attempt to capture the experience of natives where you have these aliens from space flying into the earth, crashing into the ground, rising out of the ground and zapping people to death and like kidnapping them and like sucking their blood. Yeah. And it, it's a great parallel to colonialism where these natives, they didn't know why these people were here. Just like in the movie, you don't know why the aliens are there. The technology is something you've never seen. Um, and they're... They're just lifeless alien beings uh, slaughtering these people for no reason. And I think, you know, the, what's the, how do you react to that? What's the yeah. psychological experience of that? Yeah, well, or at least, like, to the ones being conquered, they're, they're, they perceive there to be no reason. Just like right. how probably to the natives, they, appear, they, they probably perceive there to be no reason why these people would come and shoot them and enslave them and kill right. them. Right. But there was from our point of like there there wasn't a justification, but there was at least a rationale behind 
why they were going and invading and doing all of those different things. For profits, exactly. I guess, right? Yeah. So, so those are the two perspectives here that are kind of interesting, where you have these um, you know, these very smart business men in the 16th century who, who, are, who have the ability to raise capital and innovate, and, and really their principal drive is to increase... Um, uh, wealth for the shareholders, and and they were successful at doing that. Yeah. And at the other end, you now you have the natives, the native perspective, which is like, why is this happening? I right. think accountability is a really key factor here. And what you said just a little bit ago was fascinating to me about them being men of their time. And it strikes me that they were operating within the parameters that were acceptable at that point in time. Right. There were no courts that were going to haul them up and say, you slaughtered thousands of innocent people in the pursuit of profit. You must be held accountable. Whereas now, that level of accountability is much, much higher, it's much right. quicker. It's enacted with ruthless, uh, with ruthless policies in the, through the courts. I think what you said about them being men of their time is really interesting because they were allowed to do that. There was nobody telling them no. In fact, right. they were be re being rewarded for doing that. They were incentivized right. to do that. Right. And I think that's a really interesting point that you just made. Yeah, so, so since the beginning of this conversation, I was really expecting um, modern capitalism and co the colonial era to be kind of, you know, somewhat similar but pretty separate things. But now at this point, I'm really, the, the, I feel like there's very little distinction between... You know the brutality of the colonial era and the ruthlessness of modern capitalism. I think that there's it's there's a lot of there's still a lot of blurry lines of like morality. You think like maybe you know we live in the 21st century. People have to be nicer. They have to be like have a higher moral standard. But when it comes to you know driving revenue and like being a profitable company, it seems like the morality question is is much more is much more blurry than we think it is yeah people will be moral when it suits them or when they can be but absent that they are ruthlessly across time trying to generate revenue and profits to satisfy their shareholders and enrich themselves yes yes 100 percent. all right well this this was an interesting conversation it was um, yeah it definitely went in some cool directions um, I'm interested to see where the next one goes. I'm already, <laughs> I'm already chomping at the bit. Yeah, it'll be too. good. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and um, we'll see you next time.